I want you to notice as you look at verse 1 that the powerful crossing of the Jordan River actually accomplished its divinely intended purpose. If you look at verse 23 and 24 of chapter 4, you notice that the Lord stated the purpose of why he had done that. Uh, Verse 23 says, The Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed, that, there's your purpose clause, all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. You see, one of the intended effects was not only to produce fear in the hearts of Israel that they would love God, but it was also intended to show the nations that the arm of the Lord was powerful and that this God was the almighty, sovereign God of heaven and earth. And, and, and as you look at verse five, or chapter 5, verse 1, you see that that was accomplished, that the nations did take note. Because you see here, it came about when all the kings of the Amorite were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because the sons of Israel. You see, uh, the, the writer here records the fact that the miracle accomplished its intended effect, which was to not only show the power of God, but to make people afraid of the power of God. But we should also note, as Calvin did, that the recognition of the fearful power of God did not incline their hearts and minds to seek a remedy for their own evil. They were as hard-hearted as they were before. It's interesting, uh, many times in Scripture, when you see powerful miracles uh, performed by the power of God or by the hand of Jesus, that people will stand amazed and in unbelief at the same time. Yet the author here does record that it did accomplish the intended effect of of causing them to have a worldly fear, not a godly fear into repentance, but a worldly fear for self-security. And that was really significant now as you approach our passage, because what God commands right on the heels of this river crossing is a very debilitating, physically debilitating command, which leaves Israel exposed to attack. Before we dig into that command to circumcise the males of Israel, uh, let's place this particular passage in the flow of our book. Now, temporally speaking, as the events unfold in these first five chapters, it was probably less than two weeks before chapter 5, that God came to Joshua back in chapter 1, and he says, Rise, get these people up, and take them across the Jordan. You'll remember there that God said to Joshua, I will be with you wherever you go, and I will lead you, and I will strengthen you to conquer your enemies. And Joshua believed God, and he obeyed his command. We're told that he went through the camp with the generals and told them three days they were going to march. And then you come to chapter 3, and you see that indeed within three days they march some question about the timeline exactly, but it's within the frame of probably ten days or two weeks. And so they crossed the Jordan, and now if you look at chapter 4, verse 19, you see what day they crossed the Jordan. It said it was on the tenth of the first month they camped at Gilgal. So it was on the tenth day of the first month. Now the other temporal marker that we have in our passage, if you look to chapter 5, 
you will see the celebration of the Passover in verse 10 happened on the 14th day of the first month. So, in other words, what we are studying here in chapter 5 in these verses uh, of of the command to circumcise happened somewhere within that window between the 10th and the 14th day. And we have to place the circumcision before the Passover celebration because we know from the Word of God that God didn't permit uncircumcised people to partake of the Passover. At any rate, God comes to Joshua here in verse 2 and he, he gives him a very uh, perplexing command perhaps because of the military situation, the lack of security uh, that that would uh, cause for the people of Israel. He comes to, God, to Joshua, verse 2, and the Lord says, Make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel. Now I'm going to come back and talk about that flint knife some more in another connection. But it was a common instrument that was used in the ancient world to perform circumcision. But circumcision is the issue here. And we have to think about that just for a minute before we continue to walk our way through the rest of the passage. Circumcision is significant. Circumcision is instituted in Genesis chapter 17. Circumcision is instituted as the sign and seal of the covenant. You remember that God had already promised uh, to covenant with Abraham. God had already made promises to Abraham. And Genesis 15 tells us that Abraham believed the promises and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. In other words, when God preached the promises to Abraham in Genesis 15, Abraham believed that he was justified. And so now God enters into covenant with him in Genesis 17. And he says a number of things about circumcision there. And the first thing he says about circumcision is that it is to be applied to every male among Abraham's house. And and everyone who comes after that, all males who come after that. Verse 11 of Genesis 17 says, And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised. This is a perpetual ordinance throughout the history of Israel. Uh, Abraham's descendants were to be Circumcised as a sign and seal of the covenant, as a sign and seal that God has adopted them as people, as a sign and seal that God is their God, as a sign and seal representing the totality of the benefits of the covenant, which included the promise of the land, which included all kinds of redemptive blessings. But there's one more thing that is said in that passage which which causes us to to sit forward in our seats here as we read that God says to Joshua to circumcise the sons of Israel. Verse 14 of Genesis 17 says, But an uncircumcised male who was not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now when you come to Joshua chapter 5 verse 2 and you hear this command to circumcise, you lean forward because you begin to realize that these are all children of Abraham. They are sons of Israel. And basically at this time, they are outside of the covenant. And that's what we're going to have to get into to understand this passage. We'll come back to that in a moment. Very significant piece of information there. And very significant command. But you see right away in verse 3, Joshua went out and complied. He, he circumcised the sons of Israel. And now in verses 4 through 7, you get the reason 
for why they were circumcised. And, and let's just look at these verses a minute, and then we'll begin to unpack them. Uh, verse 4 and 5 give us the initial set of reasons. It, it, it says, here's why they had to be circumcised. Because all the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. And then verse 5 says, For all the people who came out were circumcised. But all the people who were born in the wilderness, and that's these sons of Israel, who, who Joshua is commanded to circumcise back in verse 2, all those people who were born in the wilderness had not been circumcised. Now, verses 6 through 7 basically return to both of those things there, and they explain it a little bit more. Uh, what you're told in verse 6 is for the reason why the, the soldiers died in the wilderness is because uh, they didn't listen to the voice of the Lord. So that explains why the soldiers died in the wilderness. But now you come to verse 7, which is supposed to explain why the children hadn't been circumcised in the wilderness. Look at what it says. It says, their children whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised. And that's a circular uh, explanation. They were uncircumcised because they weren't circumcised. Are you getting that? I mean, you have to kind of put these things together and think about it because a lot of scholars look at this and they say, what in the world is going on here? Uh, we're, we're told that we're being given an explanation and the explanation is a circle. They were uncircumcised because they were uncircumcised. And so there's been a lot of debate about this. What in the world is going on in these verses? But I think to you, and this is where we're going to settle in on our sermon, and we're going to not sit here and... Um, and look at every single little verse for a second and go to the next. We're going to pause on verse 9 and, 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 and attack this entire problem of why God commands Israel to be circumcised here through this phrase in verse 9. When the Lord says to Joshua, after Joshua has complied with the command to circumcise, God says, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. That's the key sentence in this entire set of verses is God's authoritative proclamation to Joshua. I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so we have to work with that phrase. What does it mean when God says, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt? Well, the best explanation of, of how these words should be translated should be literally something like this. I have rolled away the taunting and mocking of Egypt. We have a similar phrase used, for instance, later on in the Old Testament, the book of Zephaniah, where uh, it's recorded there that Moab was taunting Israel. It's the same word, and it's translated taunting there, but here it's, taunt, it's translated reproach. But I think we put these things together and we observe how words are used, these kinds of words and these kinds of, of words in relationship. The best explanation of this phrase is that God rolling away the reproach of Egypt is God rolling away the mocking. He's saying, Egypt is mocking you. Let's look at a few passages to help us understand what that means. Turn with me, for instance, at Exodus 32. Exodus 32. Bear in mind, we're trying to track down uh, what this reproach of Egypt is, first of all. And then we'll get into what the rolling away of the reproach is. But what is the reproach of Egypt? 
As you're turning to Exodus 32, I'm just going to fill in the context for a moment. Moses is on the mount. Moses is receiving revelation from God. And while he's gone, the people gather together to Aaron and they say, uh, This Moses who led us out of Egypt seems to have disappeared. Uh, why don't you uh, make us some gods and uh, we'll just have a party? And of course, uh, Aaron complies with that request and, and uh, shapes a, a molten calf, which is in the form of an Egyptian god. And the Word of God says in verse 6 that they rose up early, offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat, to drink, and rose up to play. In other words, what they did is they began to worship this God, and involved in the worship of this God was gross sexual immorality. It turned into the biggest hedonistic party you can imagine. And so the noise of that party and that worship service comes up to the ears of the Lord, comes up to the ears of Joshua as they're meeting on the mountain, and God just gets angry, overwhelmed with anger, and He says to them, Let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I might destroy them. See, that's God's intention. He expresses His intention as a result of their idolatry, as a result of their sexual immorality, God is ready to wipe out Israel right there on the spot. Now, what I want you to notice is Moses' response in verse 12. He said, Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and destroy them from the face of the earth? That's the taunting. You see, the Egyptians have been keeping their eye on these Israelites after they crossed that Red Sea. In case you didn't know it, uh, God captured a lot of headlines when He performed all those plagues in Egypt. Uh, God caused a lot of people to stand up and take note when, when, when people heard about the Red Sea crossing. The nations now as if are, are watching on a mountaintop as Israel just camps out in the wilderness unexplainably. And they're wondering what God's going to do because it has this whole cluster of hundreds of thousands of people sitting out in the wilderness eating breadcrumbs every day. And they're fascinated by this. And yet, here they engage in idolatry. And the thought is that if God just brings them out there and then they commit this wickedness and He destroys them, then the nations will be walking God and they will mock the people. One of the passages to look at that's, that's really important in connection with uh, our own passage is number four, Numbers 14. Numbers 14, another passage which gives us insight into the meaning of this phrase, uh, the reproach of Egypt. Very clear from Exodus uh, 32 that the reproach of Egypt is the mocking of Egypt, of God and His people. Numbers 14, you remember the context here is the Lord uh, has commanded Joshua to send the spies out of the land. And they went out and they came back with a terrible report about fortified cities and giants in the land. And they, uh, they revolted and they, they appointed a leader and they attempted to go back to Egypt. You see, what they did there was they disowned God and they disowned Moses and they disowned the covenant and they disowned the land promise. They said, we can't go into this land, it's too strong, the inhabitants are too mighty, and we're all going to die. So they forsook the covenant. God overflowed with anger again. 
verse 12 says, uh, this is the Lord's word, I will smite them with pestilence, dispossess them. So here God again, tired of Israel's unbelief, unfaithfulness. Again, look at Moses' response. Verse 13, Moses said to the Lord, The Egyptians will hear of it. For by your strength you brought this people up from their midst, and they will tell to the inhabitants of this land, and they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of these people. You, O Lord, are seen to seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land, which he promised them by an oath, he slaughtered them. In the wilderness. You see there, the reproach of Egypt, again, the reproach of Egypt is a mocking of God, as if he's too weak, too incompetent, too unloving, too powerless to take this group of people into the land. They will taunt. Just think about that a minute. The sins of the people of God bring. God into a position of being reproached by the world that's watching. That's what's being said. The reproach of Egypt is that the world is looking at the people of God and they're watching for them to live inconsistent lives. And the moment that the world sees the church living inconsistent lives, what does it do? Points at them as hypocrites. It mocks them, it ridicules them, it mocks the whole idea of religion. It it seems to say that all that the church stands for is invalidated by the behavior of those who engage in the immorality. And of course all that is is a justification for why they shouldn't be part of the church. It's a justification for why they are living in disobedience. It is a justification for their own willful stubbornness in rejecting the promises of God. Because it's not true. Maybe those people are hypocrites, but that is no reflection on God in a real sense because that's their sin. But there's the reproach. Our sin, the sins of God's people... Bring God into a situation where He is defamed before the world. You see, the actions of the people of God reflect on the God who we say we worship and serve. And if we're engaging in idolatry, if we're engaging in sexual immorality, if we're engaged in the sins of this age, the world says, what's the difference? What does it matter to come to your God because you behave like everybody else? And if you behave like everybody else in the name of your God, your God must be powerless, immoral, and weak. So what does God do? What does God do when His people Israel engage in such open, flagrant, scandalous rebellion and idolatry? He puts them under discipline. He puts them under discipline. And you see that in our passage here in Joshua chapter 5 verse 6. The sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord. That echoes exactly what is told to us in Numbers chapter 14 verse 29 and following. 
As a result of that rebellion there at Kadesh, God said, all you rebels, all you stiff-necked, stubborn Israelite men who refuse to go into the land under my leadership, under the leadership of Moses, you will all die in this wilderness. And you will wander here for 40 years. Because you will not listen to the voice of the Lord. What was the voice of the Lord to them? What was the voice of the Lord to Israel? The voice of the Lord to Israel was the command given by God to Moses to get up out of Egypt and to go take the promised land under the power and guardianship and strength of the Lord. And what did Israel do? Israel listened to its own voice its own opinions, its own commandments, and rejected the Lord. They rejected the voice of the Lord in the place of human opinions and human wisdom. You see, what led Israel into disobedience and ultimately into the place of being placed under discipline and under the wrath of God was their own disobedience to the voice of the Lord. And it hasn't changed at all. That's the same way God continues to work. When His people refuse to listen to the voice of the Lord, they are placing themselves in a position of heading for discipline. What I keep finding is that people continue to refuse to listen to the voice of the Lord because they want to listen to the voices of men. So often people seem to justify sinfulness because they want to say, well, uh, I, I, I entered into the sin and I had positive feelings when I did it. When I continued in the sin, nothing bad happened to me. And while I was in the sin, I received all kinds of signs of confirmation that this might be a good thing after all, even though I know it's contrary to the Word of God. The voices of men, the voices of ourself, and the voices of self-interest, the voices of our desires, the voices of the flesh, shout out the Word of God. I don't know what condition your life is in this morning, people of God, but... The voices of men are out shouting the voice of the Lord in your own heart, in your own mind, your own ears. You're headed for danger. Because when you enter into sin and you openly and flagrantly and publicly violate God's commandments, you bring reproach upon God. And I guarantee you one thing that God will do is God will always protect His name. He has to. He's jealous for his name. And parents, a special word of advice to us, an admonition from this passage, is that when we as covenant parents refuse to train our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, when we as parents refuse to try to live out the example set for us in the word of God before our children, it will have profound spiritual effects on our covenant youth exactly like it did here in the case of Israel. The effects of the violations of the voice of the Lord for the sons of Israel was that they are uncircumcised now 
and outside the covenant. The reproach of Egypt is the mocking of Egypt. What does it mean to roll it away? What does it mean when God says, I rolled it away through circumcision? Well, it's, it's something you can't quite see. Come back to your passage now. I want you to see this for yourself. And the translations don't help us out here as much as I would like them to. But there's a word here. There's two different words here that are used to help get the point across. What was the result of Israel's sin in the wilderness? Why are the Israelites in a position now where they need to be circumcised? Well, you see here that that we're told that the nation of Israel came out of Egypt circumcised. But look at verse 6. In verse 4, they're called all the nation. That's the typical all the people. That's the typical word in the Old Testament to refer to the covenant people of God. The Am. Or it comes with a a a suffix on the end. My people. You find that phrase a lot in the Old Testament. My people. That designates the covenant people. But now look at verse 6. It says, The sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation perished. You know, a different word is used there for nation. It's goy. Goyim. Gentiles. In other words, what it's saying is, they came out of Egypt, the people of God, and they died in the wilderness, goyim. They died in the wilderness, Gentiles. They died in the wilderness, covenant breakers, outside the covenant. Now, look at how the Word of God describes their children... In verse 8, it says, When they had finished circumcising all the nation. Nation there refers to the sons of Israel who were born in the wilderness. And the very same word is used there. It was used back in verse 6. It says, They circumcised the Goyim. The Word of God is telling us how to interpret these sons of Israel who hadn't been circumcised. It's saying, They are people under discipline. They are a people who are cut off from the covenant. Yes, because of sin. Children of Abraham cut off from the covenant. They were not circumcised. God, in His anger, withheld the sign of the covenant to the sons of Abraham at a discipline. Put all of these things together, first of all, that the reproach of Egypt is about the taunting, and, and, and then God rolls it away, rolls away this reproach from the people. You, you begin to see what's going on here. God brought these people out of Egypt powerfully. God performed miracles to sustain them, and, and yet these people turned in hardness against God. And now with the nations watching what God did, He says, if you're going to cause reproach to come upon me by your scandalous, public, sinful behavior, then I'm putting you under discipline. And now before all of the nations to see, God has shown His anger and His discipline upon these people, and now the nations are gathered around, mocking them as if they were nothing. They're manifesting themselves to be outside of the covenant. What is the rolling away then? Now the rolling away of the reproach of Egypt is found in, the meaning of that is found in 
the command of verse 2, circumcise the sons. What is God doing? He's lifting the bat of discipline and he's inviting these sons right back into the covenant and he's applying the covenant sign to them. And he says, you were not a people and now you are a people. I once wasn't your God and now I am your God. He is inviting them back into the covenant and he is bringing them into the fold of his promises. He is administering his grace unto them. He is welcoming them into relationship with himself. He's bringing back in the straying sheep. He's showing His mercy. The command to circumcise these sons of Israel is God showing His mercy to a wayward people and sovereignty granting them His grace. The rolling away of the reproach of Egypt is gospel. It's God seeking those who are stray and bringing them into the shelter of His gracious protection by sovereign mercy. As you fast forward in the history of redemption, you see God doing that in a particular person, don't you? It's Jesus. He responds to the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15 and the intervention of his disciples. He says, I was sent. I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. God and Jesus came back to these people, these stiff, stubborn, hard-hearted, stiff-necked people. And God and Jesus opens his arms and welcomes them to the fullness of of covenant blessing and fulfillment in Christ. And, and the fact of the matter is, Jesus didn't stop the mission there. Jesus continues the mission to this day. Jesus is constantly going after the straying sheep. Jesus is constantly extending the hand of mercy to come back to the Father. God in Jesus is rolling away the reproach of Egypt. I believe this passage has a very particular a very particular application to the covenant and people of God. Obviously, that goes beyond that. God is in the business of rolling away the reproach of our sin day after day after day. God brings His elect people unto Himself through Jesus Christ. But I believe this passage particularly has an application to the covenant people. And that is for those people particularly who are stuck in their sins and those people who particularly have turned away from the Lord. They've hardened their heart and they've decided that their way is better than God's way. That the voice of man is better than the voice of the Lord. What God says to people like that is, by rolling away the reproach of Egypt, that if you come back to Him with a penitent heart, that He rolls away the reproach of discipline, He rolls away the reproach of the world. He rolls away the reproach of sin. And He brings us into covenant with Himself and washes away the impurity and the sin. That's what He did for Israel. Not only did He roll away the reproach by applying the sign of circumcision to His people, He then fed them with His grace. It's not surprising then that you see verse 10 in Joshua 5. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover 
on the evening of the 14th day of the month in the desert plains of Jericho. Now, if you search out the Word of God, you realize that there is no record of Israel observing Passover in the wilderness after Numbers chapter 9, which was in the second year after they came out of Egypt. No record of it, and it seems to me that the reason why there's no record of it is because you have a whole generation of people who aren't circumcised, you have a whole other generation of people who basically disown God. It seems to me that what God did was withhold the means of grace basically in that wilderness wandering period, or at least certainly, uh, He certainly minimized the the means of grace in a sense, although he provided for his people providentially. But here, now after God comes back to these people and he owns them by covenant, by applying the sign of circumcision to them, he immediately, after establishing them in the covenant, feeds them with the means of grace through the Passover, so that they will feed on Christ. And then in verse 11, sustains them through the natural, ordinary means of providence by allowing them to feed off of the produce of the land which he had promised. The rolling of the wave, the reproach of Egypt, meant that God welcomed his people unto him with full and free forgiveness. And the rolling away of the reproach of Egypt meant that God welcomed them to Jesus and to partake of the fullness of his grace. It's a marvelous story. As we think about that this morning, I want to end with a couple of applications for us. And the first one is that Uh, Being under the discipline of the Lord as a covenant member is a terrible place to be. Being under the discipline of the Lord as a covenant member is a terrible place to be. Because first of all, if you're under the discipline of the Lord, the Lord deprives you of the sacraments. You know, it's not by accident that in Joshua chapter 5, which records the bringing in of the people of God into the fullness of covenant participation and blessing, that God gives them the fullness of the sacraments. He says, here's what it is to be out of discipline. Here's what it is to be in a right relationship with God. Is that you have the privilege to partake of the means of grace and have fellowship and communion with God. But you also see in that what it means to be under discipline. That it means that you are cut off from those gracious means which sustain your relationship with Jesus. And that is a fearful and terrible place to be in. If any of us are on the brink of engaging in scandalous public sins which would make it appear that we had disowned God and brought reproach on Him this morning, the admonition of of being cut off from participation in God's grace ought to warn us all. Step back! From the voice of men. Listen to the voice of the Lord. It's also a terrible place to be because of what discipline is. A discipline is a time when God gives you over to discover your own sins. For 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness, what do you imagine those Israelites were discovering? time when they no doubt must have reflected upon all of the grace that God had shown them, all of the miracles, all of the miraculous sustenance of them by manna and quail, and all the things that God gave. And yet, what did they do in return? 
They grumbled against the Lord and His servant. 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 And you can no doubt imagine what was going over and over and over and over and over in their minds is that the Lord was discovering unto them their sin. And that is a very painful process to go through. And that's what it is to be under the discipline of the Lord. A discovering of our sinfulness. And making us aware of our sin. Making us see the devastating consequences of it. So that it softens our hearts. And opens us up to see the grace of God to us in Jesus Christ. I plead with you that you don't go through that. I plead with you that you stop and you listen to the voice of the Lord. And stop listening to the voice of men yourself. It's a terrible, painful process to go through. To have God discover your sins unto you. So the admonition of the passage then is that we avoid the reproach of the Lord by listening to His Word, by listening to His voice. But the only application of this, the passage is not only a negative application to us, it's a positive one, I think is the highlight of the passage. It's the great note of hope and joy in our passage, again in verse 9. When you understand this phrase and the richness of its biblical context and, and concept and meaning, you see the joy of this, of this passage. It's gospel. It's, it's hope. Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. What a great God we serve. He rolls away the reproach of Egypt from his people, from his elect. And God shows mercy. God is a God who deals in kindness. I hope we're reminded this morning, as we think about that and view of our own sinfulness, that we, we run from our sins, first of all. But we don't just run away from them. It's not just that we're running away from sin. I I hope that's not how we view it. Just something negative. We see sin in our own heart, in our own life, and we just run from sin so that we clean up the externals, we clean up the surface, and, and we look like we have our life put together. I hope we're not just worried about running away from sin. I hope we are running with a purpose, with a point, with a focal point. That we're running to Jesus when we run away from our sin. And we run unto Him and to His precious blood and to His cross and to His perfect obedience and His righteousness and His justifying grace. And we find ourselves a refuge there. A Savior who is merciful, who forgives all of our sin, who heals all of our diseases and fills our hearts with His joy. This morning, people of God, I commend you to God. The God who rolls away the reproach of Egypt. He's found in Jesus and you are invited to Him and to find in Him daily the joy of knowing the rolling away of the reproach of your own sin. And the joy then of knowing and enjoying and participating in God, His fellowship and His grace. Let's pray.